Welcome to Snap Sessions, a podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name is Doug Nunn. I'm joined by voiceover colossus Ken Krause, by our behind-the-scenes techmeister Marshall Brown, and by our artist of the show, writer, actor, director, Michael Gene Sullivan of the San Francisco Mime Troupe. This episode also includes a satirical analysis of the Texas energy crisis and a salute to Jamie Raskin and the House Impeachment Managers. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Thanks to our Snappus Maximus contributors, Ron Hawksprung and Rick and Henny Newman, and to our supportive snappers, Peter and Sheila Jowers, Dominie Jowers and John Bird, Gabriel Geiger, and Christine Samus. Tech Shitter, the Texan from Exxon, explains the Texas freeze. Now, Texas got a bad reputation because of what happened in Dallas and Washington and Waco. And our corporations, well, yeah, they are corrupt, and our politicians, ah, swindlers and locos. So screw you, we're from Texas. Screw you, we're from Texas. Screw you, we're from Texas. We're from Texas. Ah, screw you, we're from Texas. Texas has just endured the deep freeze of 2021. As you may know, Texas and much of the lower Midwest was overwhelmed by a massive polar vortex the week following Valentine's Day, with electric grid blackouts, frozen pipes, and collapsed heating systems. In addition, they were soon having to boil their water. In an interview with Fox News' Sean Hannity, Texas Governor Greg Abbott claims it was caused by the Green New Deal. But Snap Sessions wants to get to the bottom of this crisis. How did this happen? Snap Sessions is here with Republican fossil fuel spokesman and Abbott aide Tex Shitter for an in-depth What in Sam Hill's Going On interview. Thanks for having me, Kenny. I am indeed Tex Shitter, the Texan from Exxon. I'm president of Shitter Oil, and I ain't gonna grovel under to any liberal crybabies or California fruitcakes so you can stop your pussyfoot and whimpering right now. Mr. Shitter, Governor Abbott said this on Sean Hannity's show. Sean, this shows how the Green New Deal would be a deadly deal for the United States of America. Texas is blessed with multiple sources of energy, such as uh, natural gas and oil uh, and nuke. But you saw from what Trace said, uh, and that is our wind and our solar got shut down, and and they were uh, collectively more than 10 percent of our power grid. And that thrust Texas into a situation where it was lacking power in a statewide basis. How can this 10 percent of alternative energy be blamed for the entire electrical grid collapse? Now hold on, Mr. Libtard. Our esteemed Governor Abbott is right to blame the Green New Deal. Why, do you know that the Green New Deal would force us all to eat granola and honey-frosted tofu for dinner? Who wants to give up a T-bone for a bowl of granola? 
Come on, Mr. Shitter. We have evidence that wind accounts for just 10% of the power in Texas generated during the winter, and the loss of power to the grid caused by the shutdowns of thermal power plants. Primarily those relying on natural gas dwarf the dent caused by frozen wind turbines by a factor of five or six. There you go with your hurricane of numbers, just like the election. Mr. Trump won 74 million votes, more than any other candidate that's ever run, except one. Yet you doubting Thomases and Thomasinas stole the election. Uh, Joe Biden won 81 million votes. So? 74 million is pretty damn impressive. Uh, Let's get back to the Texas energy crisis. Texas has deregulated energy to the point where it chose not to provide power companies with incentives to install reserve capacity to deal with possible emergencies. This made power cheaper in normal times, but left the system vulnerable when things went wrong. The collapse of the Texas power grid didn't just reveal a few shortcomings. It showed that the entire deregulation philosophy behind the state's energy policy is wrong. And it also showed that the state is run by people who will resort to blatant lies rather than admit their mistakes. Now hold your horses there, Mr. Owl-loving, tree-hugging blabbermouth. You must be from the Hall of Fame of pissing, moaning, and hollering. I agree with former Texas governor and U.S. Energy Secretary Rick Perry, who famously said, quote, If we humans want to keep surviving frigid winters, we're going to have to keep burning natural gas, and lots of it, for decades to come, unquote. Now there's a man with his hair sprayed on right. But what about global warming? What about climate change? How can you say the globe is warming when we spent all the last week frozener than a pack of otter pops? Climate ain't changing. It's just getting twitchy. Now, Texas has always advocated energy deregulation. As I recall, Enron almost ran our electric grid into the ground around 20 years ago. Enron was just ahead of its time, Kenny. Like, when I went out to Northern California advocating a few hundred oil derricks off the Redwood Coast back in the late 1980s. They could have had aquatic Eiffel Towers, but they was too damn liberal. You gotta take the bull by the horns if you want to fight your way out of this energy crisis. What about the Green New Deal, which promises to create millions of good-paying union jobs building shock-resilient green energy infrastructure, mass transit, and affordable housing? What have you got against that? Green New Deal? While the GND will not only force you eat hummus-filled vegans for dinner... Why do you know if they get the GND, you're all going to have to ride Priuses, even in demolition derbies? Can you believe that? I might want to wreck a Prius, damn right, but I don't want them buggering up any demolition derbies. And the GND, they want you to carry organic firearms. Can you imagine an AR-15 made out of organic compostable plastic? Why, the mind boggles. I've never read anything like that. Sounds like something Ted Cruz would say. You stop right there. No belittling of Mr. Cruz. Why, he was leading a pilgrimage to Cancun to find heat and light to get us out of this Green New Deal AOC-caused disaster. And you dare to mock Mr. Cruz. What a marvelous man Mr. Cruz is. 
Why, when you think about it, Ted Cruz could personally supply enough hot air to run all the wind turbines in the central United States. And that doesn't even count his potential bullshitting capacity. Just think of all the alternative energy that man Ted Cruz is capable of producing all by himself. Former Representative Beto O'Rourke, Democrat of Texas, says the energy capital of North America cannot provide enough energy to warm and power people's homes. We are nearing a failed state in Texas, and it has nothing to do with God or natural disasters. It has everything to do with those in positions of public trust who have failed us. Did you say Beto? Every time I hear that SOB's name, I think liberal bullpucky and bureaucratic red tape. I heard him whining that people were having to boil snow to make water. Well, think about how much folks learned just by boiling snow. Who knew you could make water out of snow? On that note, Snap Sessions would like to thank Mr. Tech Shitter for giving us the poop on a very important topic. Thank you, Kenny. And just remember, anytime you want to analyze energy policy, just check in with Tech Shitter, the Texan from Exxon. Shitter oil. Don't smell so good, but it sure gives you get up and go. I saw miles and miles of Texas. All the stars up in the skies I saw miles and miles of Texas Gonna live there till I die Jamie Raskin and the House Impeachment Managers present their case. People name you the president You get your power from our consent It's not just a figure of speech if you do something you shouldn't do, the Constitution will deal with you. Congress has power to impeach. Republicans, Democrats, in betweeners. No one likes high crimes and misdemeanors. Your tiny hands will scratch and claw. But nobody's above the law. When I was young, a long, long time ago, and heard teachers, family, and friends talk about our esteemed system of government, I would be inspired in moments of national emergency or achievement. As a 10-year-old, I worried about those damn Ruskies putting missiles in Cuba. Nuclear combat toe-to-toe with the Ruskies. And marveled at President Kennedy's steely resolve. Our goal is not the victory of might, but the vindication of right. As a young teen, I was very impressed with the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But then, Vietnam overwhelmed my sense of trust, and after four years at UC Berkeley in the early middle 1970s, I was downright dubious about the efficacy of government and just plain mistrustful of politicians. This is why I have trust issues. I had many moments of political rebirth when Barack Obama ran for president and during his time in office. Fired up! I genuinely liked Obama, appreciated his attempts to move the country forward, and was impressed when he pushed his American Recovery Act, major health care reform, and his efforts on the Clean Power Plan and advocating for the Paris Climate Accords in 2015. Unfortunately, these actions were by executive order and were not passed as legislation, as the contrarian Republican Congress countered him every step of the way. You shall not pass! 
I liked Obama a lot. He inspired, but had trouble defeating the weaselly and amoral Mitch McConnell and his devious allies in the Senate. That sounds dangerous. But the recent experience watching the House impeachment managers present their case in the second impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump has created a stirring rekindling of that sense of democratic wonder. The group of nine House prosecutors was led by Congressman Jamie Raskin and included Joaquin Castro, David Cicilline, Madeline Dean, Diana DeGette, Ted Liu, Joe Neguse, Stacy Plaskett, and Eric Swalwell. Two Californians, two Coloradans, a Texan, a Pennsylvanian, a Rhode Islander, a Marylander, and a delegate from the Virgin Islands. All articulate, powerful speakers, they worked extraordinarily well as a team, delivering what former CBS anchor Dan Rather called one of the most comprehensive, competent, clarifying, and compelling cases I have ever seen in the U.S. Congress, a presentation NBC called One for the Ages. Wow, it looks great. Traditional American Foursquare. The teamwork was indeed incredible. According to the Washington Post, quote, Raskin gave the constitutional overview, laying both an emotional and legal foundation for the case. Neguse outlined the overarching structure of the House argument. Representatives Lou, Swalwell, Castro, and Dean took senators through the president's tweets and statements chronologically, illustrating how he had put the election, the courts, members of Congress, and ultimately his vice president in the crosshairs of his supporters. Plaskett and Swalwell guided senators through the introduction of the footage, video that drew tears to the eyes of many in the room. And Cicilline, DeGette, and others argued that Trump's actions had done the country irreparable harm. What a mess. <laughs> My bad. Every member of the impeachment team had a law degree, and they proved masters of rhetorical argumentation. There's not going to be any last-minute surprise witnesses. Nobody's going to break down on the stand with a tearful confession. You're going to be presented a simple fact. Dean and Raskin had been law professors. Castro and DeGette had worked in private practice. Cicilline was a public defender, DeGette a civil rights attorney, and Swalwell, Lou, and Plaskett had been prosecutors. Plaskett had also been one of Raskin's law students at American University Washington College of Law. In their pre-trial workouts, almost exclusively over Zoom, Raskin pushed the managers in the Socratic method. We use the Socratic method here. I call on you, ask you a question, and you answer it. According to Representative Plaskett, These weren't Zoom calls. or meetings where it was just the lead manager pontificating, she said, the discussion would be teasing out ideas. How did that sound? Let's push that just a little bit. If this had been a baseball team, there would not have been a weak link in the entire lineup, energetic from start to finish, from Raskin through Neguse, through Lou, Swalwell, Dean, Castro, DeGette, Cicilline, and Plaskett. But the leader, Jamie Raskin, was an orator for the ages. He set a great example and led with vigor, purpose, and metaphorical flourish. Maryland, my Maryland, I'm coming back again from the west. 
Raskin is a 59-year-old Maryland congressman who has been a progressive all his life. Raskin was descended from Russian Jewish immigrants and is the son of activists. His mother Barbara was a journalist and novelist while his father, Marcus, was a former staff aide to President Kennedy on the National Security Council and a co-founder of the Institute for Policy Studies. Raskin became a law professor at American University Washington School of Law. He worked as general counsel for Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition, advocated for the repeal of the death penalty in Maryland, for the reform of marijuana laws, and for the fight to legalize same-sex marriage. When confronted by an opposing lawmaker fighting him on the issue of same-sex marriage, Raskin famously said, Senator, when you took your oath of office, you placed your hand on the Bible and swore to uphold the Constitution. You did not place your hand on the Constitution and swear to uphold the Bible. It was this wonderful ability to turn arguments on their head, this bent for colorful and evocative metaphor, that would make Raskin a superb leader in the second impeachment trial. Tragically, Raskin lost his son, Tommy, to suicide on December 31, 2020, just a week before the Capitol was stormed. Tommy had been suffering from depression and quite suddenly stunned Raskin and his family with his suicide. On January 6th, Raskin was with his daughters at the Capitol when it was overpowered by Trump-inspired insurrectionists. Raskin famously said, I, you know, I'm not going to lose my son at the end of 2020 and lose my country and my republic in 2021. It's not going to happen. I can't imagine taking on such an enormous assignment in the aftermath of such a tragic loss. But Jamie Raskin rose to the occasion with powerful and picturesque arguments to the notion that Trump had just been exercising his First Amendment free speech rights. And to use a favorite term that all of you people really came up with, we will stop the steal. We have come to demand that Congress do the right thing. In stoking the crowd of crazed hillbillies who attacked the Capitol, Raskin countered with a modern interpretation of the famous Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes idea on the limits of free speech. You can't shout fire in a crowded theater. Worse than someone who falsely shouts fire in a crowded theater. It's more like a case where the town fire chief, who's paid to put out fires, sends a mob not to yell fire in a crowded theater, but to actually set the theater on fire. And who then, when the fire alarms go off and the calls start flooding into the fire department, asking for help, does nothing but sit back, encourage the mob to continue its rampage and watch the fire spread on TV with glee and delight. So then we say this fire chief should never be allowed to hold this public job again and you're fired and you're permanently disqualified. And he objects and he says... We're violating his free speech rights just because he's pro-mob or pro-fire or whatever it might be. Come on. I mean, you, you really don't need to go to law school to figure out what's wrong with that argument. Raskin had begun his argument by citing from memory Thomas Paine's opening paragraphs of the pamphlet series Paine wrote during the American Revolution. These are the times that try men and women's souls. These are the times that try men and women's souls. The summer soldier 
and the Sunshine Patriot will shrink at this moment from the service of their cause and their country. But everyone who stands with us now will win the love and the favor and the affection of every man and every woman for all time. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered, but we have this saving consolation. The more difficult the struggle, the more glorious in the end will be our victory. In the words of House Manager Madeline Dean, Democrat, Pennsylvania, Jamie Raskin wanted conviction, and he believed in the power of the evidence and the law, and of course, in the argument, adding that the managers didn't want to persuade only two-thirds of the senators to convict. They wanted 100 senators. In the end, they convinced only seven of the 50 Republican senators, who voted with the 50 Democrats to convict President Trump for inspiring a mob to attack the Capitol. Inspiring seven Republican senators in these partisan times is a victory of sorts. But perhaps more importantly, they rekindled hope and belief in democracy in my heart. For this, I am grateful to Congressman Raskin and the eight other House managers for presenting their powerful case for conviction. Tom Paine would be proud of you all. So let's remember his words. Those who expect to reap the blessings of freedom must, like men, undergo the fatigues of supporting it. Many's the time I've been mistaken And many times confused Yes, and I've often felt forsaken And certainly Oh, but I'm all right, I'm all right Just weary to my bones Still, you don't expect to be bright and born Vivant so far away from home So dreamed I was dying I dreamed that my soul rose unexpectedly And looking back down at me Smiled reassuringly And I dreamed I was flying And high up above My eyes could clearly see The Statue of Liberty Sailing away to sea And I dreamed I was flying Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon. We depend on the support of listeners like you. I am here, ladies and gentlemen, with Michael Gene Sullivan, actor, playwright, director, singer, political activist, and longtime member of the San Francisco Mime Troupe, which is one of my favorite all-time groups. For those of you who have missed out on all their shows in the parks all over uh, Northern California and the country, actually, they have been doing political comedy and political musical comedy for almost 60 years now, Michael? Over 60 years, 61. 
61 years. And so that's it. 61 years. Not me personally, but the company. You've been in it about half the time, and we'll come around to that. It's it's actually amazing when you think about it, and the number of people who have been involved with the troupe over time, and actually the multi-generational aspect of the San Francisco Mm -hmm. Mime Troupe. When I was there about a year and a half ago, I was meeting people who were sons and daughters who were already grown. Keiko's, I guess it's Keiko's son, he's involved. And he's like 25 or something now or 20? No, he's not quite that old. Okay. But he's enough. he's like 19, I think. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Well, I'm, yeah. you know, Mr. Inflation here. So anyway, we <laughs> welcome you. We welcome you, Michael Gene Sullivan. Thanks for coming to Snap Sessions. No, thanks for having me. I was looking mm. stuff, you know, I've been doing research and uh, stuff. It feels really weird to do research behind your back, kind of, you know what I mean? It's like, Ooh, yeah, sneaky. definitely. I read that you had moved up to San Francisco as about a, as a seven-year-old, and you're in, you and your parents were even yeah. Mime Troop fans when you were a kid. Tell us a little bit about your theatrical youth. Well, first of all, okay, quick story. Here's why my family moved to San Francisco. We lived in L.A., and my mother worked for Bobby Kennedy. She was a Kennedy girl here in California, and uh, she was um, there the, the night Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. Mm-hmm. Uh, after the assassination, uh, she was rushed out of California because the FBI was concerned that some of the witnesses would be killed as they were after JFK's assassination. So they wanted to get her out of the way. So she went to Michigan, where uh, both sides of my family are from. And when she came back uh, after being gone for about two weeks, she came back. Uh, the FBI decided they needed to go somewhere to go into kind of witness protection for a little oh. while. And they asked my parents where they wanted to go. And they decided San Francisco because my parents felt like if the revolution was going to happen, it was going to start in San Francisco and they wanted to be at the epicenter of it. So that's why we moved to San Francisco when I was seven. Was your dad also a political uh, animal? Oh, yeah. My parents went to uh, Black Panther meetings when they were in LA. And when we got up here, I remember them sneaking me. They, they, My sisters were older, so they were out with their friends and my parents were going to a meeting with the Panthers in Oakland. And so we had to go over there and go into somebody's apartment and then down through the building and into the basement and through a tunnel and up to another building and stuff to have this meeting. I was just a kid. Uh, but yes, my parents were both very political. When did you start waking up politically? Growing up in a political household, there was no like woke <laughs> moment or something that people are like. And then, no, that's just how I was raised. I, my parents, we, our whole family went to, there was the Century City riots in LA uh, back when LBJ was running uh, for president. We were there. My family and I were there. We were chased by the cops. We were, you know, running around, trying hiding in the bushes while the police were coming through, bashing people's heads. This is how I was raised. My parents always talked about politics in the household. And this is, you know, the civil rights movement was on television all the time. The Vietnam War was on television. And this is what we talked about. My parents were both very much into history and philosophy and psychology. And so there was no kind of ah moment in terms of politics. There's the um, Irish Republican Army. There's the Palestinian Liberation Organization, they're the Black Panthers, they're the Young Lords, there's the American Indian Movement. These are my peeps. This is who the the groups that I was raised to admire and look up to as uh, the people who are going to help us in our next revolutionary stage of a better, more peaceful, more equal world. And I never left it. I was not one of those people who rebelled against my radical parents. You went along with the rebellion that they were already exhibiting. You were you were part of that, and you've continued with that then as a mime trooper, etc. Yeah, yeah. Were you a theater nerd early on? Were you a theatrical youth? Oh, God, no. No, no, no. I wanted to be a history teacher. 
That was my goal in life. My, my, the two things I wanted to do when I was a kid was one, I wanted to be a history teacher because I feel that history is the single most important thing anybody can learn. And I wanted to own a used bookstore <laughs> so that I could sit there and read all day and then maybe sell my books to people. Maybe not. And uh, it wasn't the first play I remember seeing that, that really shook me uh, with, was when I saw the, the national tour of Hair when I was a kid. You know, we were in San Francisco and hair came through and we went down to, I don't know, the Orpheum or something and saw it. And uh, if you've ever seen hair, there's this moment at the end of the first act when suddenly the back doors at the back of the theater pop open. All these cops come running down in riot gear and they chase all of the actors off the stage, these hippie actors off the stage. And they all turn and look at the audience with their, you know, shields and their truncheons and everything. And then the lighthouse lights come up and it's intermission. <laughs> and when that happened... In that production, I'd already been in so many uh, protests and riots, and I was like 10 at the time, so it was very real. I was like, this is exactly what's happening right now. And then when I realized it was part of the play, I was just blown away as a kid. I was like, that was amazing. And I mean, it wasn't like I went, oh, theater is going to be the thing. I didn't become a theater nerd by any means. I mean, I got into theater really because a bunch of my friends were into theater, and Valina, who I'm conveniently married to, Valina Brown, uh, we met in middle school, by the way. We were in high school together. She was doing theater. I was still studying history. She was in theater. And I wanted to spend more time with her. And I had some other friends who were also in this little theater company. So I auditioned for the theater company. And I got into this little high school theater company. Within two years, I was like co-artistic director of the company. And I was writing plays and directing all of this stuff. So it really kind of took off from there. But in large part, it was because uh, I was, um, you know, wanted to spend time with her. That is something that has made a lot of relationships, and I suspect that's made a lot of musicians and theatrical types as well, is rom mm -hmm. romance, actually, which is a lovely thing. Yeah. You've been s strongly associated with the mime troupe since at least 1990 that I can remember, maybe even a couple years before. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing you first in Seeing Double, which was a brilliant little play about mm -hmm. a case of my mistaken identity in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So mm -hmm. I believe you play both parts, right? Yes, I played the two, the two boys. Tell us a little bit about getting into the mime troupe, and uh, tell us a little bit about that show. Well, my father actually took me to my first mime troupe show when I was about 17. You know, he wasn't a big, like, going to the theater all the time, but he, he'd heard about this company, and he heard what they did, this comedy, political activism, music, all of this stuff that our family was into. We're, you know, we were really into comedy, and really into history, and really into politics. So um, he said, hey, well, let's go see this show, and it was Fact Wino, one of the Fact Wino shows. I think it was the first one. Fact, why no uh, needs uh, and the moral versus the moral majority. Great stuff. And so he took me out to the park and we, yeah. And I was just starting to think about being an actor at that point. And I saw that show and I went, this is exactly what I want to do. This is exactly it. It brings everything together in a way that's supposed to activate the audience. It's entertaining. It's funny. You end. And it's like, let's now go out and overthrow stupidity and capitalism. <laughs> So after that, I started going every year and my family would go and we would see it. And I and as I became more and more interested in being an actor, the Mime Troupe was always the company I had my eye on. And I was doing Shakespeare and studying and, you know, working for different companies. But uh, with the Mime Troupe, there was an issue, which was that I was considered too young. There weren't any parts for me. 
because they want wanted people, as we still do, you want people to play all these different ages and types in every show. And the whole company had reached a certain age where they were like, how are we going to use this guy? And they would just tell me that. They go, yeah, nice audition. We don't know where to use you. You're too young. So what I did was the next time I came in for an audition, I wore my heaviest clothes. I wore these big, heavy boots that I had, really big submariner boots, and this huge jacket that I still have that itself weighs like 25 pounds. I wore everything that I had, and I decided to act tired through the entire audition. And I went in, and I did it, and I just kept exhaling and just like, okay, I'll do this. And at the end, they were like, wow, you've really matured since the last time we saw you. We'll keep you in mind. And it was just me trying to act older and act tired. And so... Then they uh, they were doing a show called Ripped Van Winkle. Oh yes, and yeah. one of the yeah, and one of the actors, uh, Mark Christopher Lawrence, was going to move to L.A. He wanted to be on television, and so he left the show. And they needed a replacement actor, and I was doing As You Like It, the San Francisco Shakespeare Festival at the time. So a bunch of Mime Troop people had seen me in that show, and they decided, well, let's call Michael up and this new guy and see if he's interested in just doing the tour. So I had to leave the other show, which worked out okay because my understudy was the producer's girlfriend. And I went on the road with the Mime Troupe for that tour. And I was like, finally, I'm having this chance. It was a great national tour. It was a lot of fun. Uh, And then the next spring, they said, are you interested in coming back and doing another show with us in the spring? And I said, I can't because I'd already gotten a job uh, doing a school tour that paid really well. And then they said, well, we've got this other show in the summer we're looking at called, we don't know what it's going to be called yet. It's about Palestine, Israel. And we already have this part cast, but would you be interested in like being an understudy? And I was like, I don't know. And then they, uh, the other actor decided to not do the role. And they said, do you want to just, do you want to play these parts? So I said, yes, I quit the other job. And I was in another show at another theater company. Cause I always try to I got rent to pay. Oh, yeah. So I was doing a lot of shows. So I had to drop out of two shows to do Seeing Double, which worked out very well. I ended up doing the show for two years. We went around the States. We played off-Broadway. That is, like you were saying, that's the show that means so much to a lot of people. And it brought a lot of people to an idea of political musical comedy dealing with these very huge issues, big international issues in a way that the Mime Troupe had been dealing with domestic issues. And this was a big step for them. I did that. And then they were kind of like the next year we were going to go to Palestine, Israel to do the show. And they said, well, we don't have time to rehearse our next show after that. You just want to have a part because we don't have time to not cast you. And I was like, thanks for the words of encouragement. You bet. (laughs) So then I did that show. And then after that, I hung around the mime troupe enough that they just started assuming I was going to be in shows. And I did other shows at other theater companies in the off season until finally they just, you want to just be in a collective. And I said, no. (laughs) Just as a side note, the San Francisco mime troupe is a collective. It's a worker run. It's called worker run, multi-ethnic, multi-generational group of activists committed to overthrowing capitalism one musical at a time, which I love. And then the follow-up, and one of these days we'll get it right. I love that. Now, you here's the deal, and this is the part where I don't want you to sell yourself short because you also brought the pen. You, you're a good writer, and you early on show that you could write this kind of Brechtian musical kind of stuff, this sort of um, solid uh, left-wing mm. progressive 
entertainment. It was funny, too. And I know you learned a lot from Joan Holden, who was one of the original uh, Mime Troupe big writers then. But tell us about getting that transition in where you become mm -hmm. part of this uh, political comedy theater uh, musicals. Yeah, they asked me, Bruce Barthol brought it up, I think on their second tour of na uh, national tour of Seeing Double. He said, well, do you want to be in the collective? And I said, no, because I didn't feel like I could commit that much. And I'd seen those collective meetings and they were crazy. <laughs> and so I was like, I don't want to be part of that. But I kept showing up to collective meetings anyway, because since we were doing Seeing Double and I was the double leads in the show, any plan that was going to happen around that show, they had to involve me. So I kept getting called into meetings, but I didn't have voting power. I had to leave the room. And then after I had been there for like maybe four years, three or four years, I was asked again if I wanted to be in the collective. And this time I said, yes. Uh, I was like, I'm, I'm there all the time anyway. I'm doing tours. And, and I saw that I could still work at other theaters because that was a concern. So since I could work other places, I was like, yeah, great. So I started doing shows and having more say in and how the shows get created. Because one thing that people don't always understand, the Mime Troupe is a, a collective in that our artistic director is a bunch of people. But the, the strength of the collective, and any collective, I think, is delegating responsibility. Everybody doesn't write the play. Everybody doesn't design the costumes. Everybody doesn't make the poster. Those things are all delegated by the collective. Because if everybody tries to do everything, everybody's going to get burned out and nothing's going to really be that good. You want people who know what they're doing, doing these jobs. Yeah. So, so uh, I came in as an actor and then I was really interested in directing. And then we were doing a show called Social Work and uh, Joan Holden was writing with some other people. And there was a kind of a gap in the show. They wanted some other scenes and there was a lot of research being done. And that's a huge part of Mime Troop scripts is research there was kind of a comedy bit that wasn't happening in my opinion at the time. And I said, well, I'd like to try to do this. Interestingly, well, interesting to me, years and years and years earlier, I had been asked to be in a comedy troupe when I was like 12. And, and they were like, yeah, we're going to write comedy. And I was like, no, because at that time I was like, I have no idea how you write comedy. I don't get it. I, there's stuff I think is funny, but writing comedy seemed impossible to me. But when I was with the troupe, I was like, it still seemed impossible. But I was like, but I feel like I know what, what's supposed to happen in these scenes. So I wrote these scenes and they were very farcical, politically hard. People died in them hilariously. <laughs> um, and so... So after that, I became, it was like every year, I was like, well, can I write a piece of this show? And, you know, this scene or write this character. And then it got more and more like two years later when we did Offshore, I wrote more of the show until we got to Siberia, Escape from Siberia, and I wrote most of the show. And so by the time Joan retired from the company, I had already written most of a few shows, shows that she hadn't written on. She didn't write on uh, like Siberia and she didn't write on eating it. And I'd written most of the shows. So by the time she was like, I'm out of here, everybody in the company was still like, Oh my God, Joan's been here for 30 years. No one could replace her. And I was like, I'll do it. <laughs> and our next show was 1600 Transylvania Avenue, which ended up being the biggest hit in the history of the company up till that point. That gets me into the next part. I wanted to have you do, you know, just a few comments on some of these big hits and I remember 1600 Transylvania Avenue. Oh, 
Vampires, not zombies. Yes, yes. I was going to say zombies are vamps from past administrations rise from their graves to kill social services. That's the blurb, I think, that's on the Mime Troop page. Tell us a little bit about 1600 Transylvania Avenue and some of your inspirations for that. Well, the idea with 1600 was I was, I was, that was the first show where I was, everybody was looking to me because I said I would write the first post Jones show. And I was trying to think of something with Bush Cheney or Cheney Bush administrations. And uh, I, I thought about the idea of corporations as legal people. Oh, yeah. How they feed off of the, the, the commonwealth, how they take advantage of the society. How do you kill them? Because they're immortal. And then I thought, well, what else is immortal that feeds off people? Vampires. <laughs> so I decided to write it. As a traditional, you know, I went back and read Bram Stoker's Dracula, which I've read a few times. I read the stage version that Bola Lugosi did on Broadway all those decades ago. I watched all the movie versions and decided to make it about that as a commentary to the audience on this idea of immortal legal people who feed off of us. And using Bush... Through the whole play, it seems like Bush is, you know, he's president and he's going to be the center of this. And then at the end, it turns out it's really chaining. And Bush is just this little weasel that runs around. And, you know, there was a Renfield, uh, uh, Conrad Samara played Renfield, and Valina Brown played Mina, or in our play, Shamina. I mean, we had this great cast. Ed Holmes, of course, played Chaney. And, it, and so it was a lot of fun. It was a big design show where we did all of this stuff with the set, and uh, it was a lot of fun. It's a great show. Uh, is that is that on tape, or, or is that grabbable in any way for anybody? Not really. All People always ask about our shows, and we're trying to work out something with uh, Actors' Equity. There are ways that you can release uh, videoed versions of plays, but you have to pay the actors more, of course, and you have to pay for, uh, you have to give percentage points and all of this, and you have to have an agreement with Equity. And the Mind Troop has never had enough money to be able to deal with some of that. The shows all have been videoed in one way or another. Last year, we actually released one of our shows. It was the first time we could do it, where we released a show called yeah. Freedom Land, which was a uh, Black Lives Matter anti-police brutality show that I wrote uh, a few years ago. And, we, and somebody, not a mime trooper, filmed it in the park, but he did an excellent version. He filmed it because he said he was trying to do uh, a little blurb for us and he needed to film different parts of the show so that he could make this little trailer. And it turned out he still, and I mean, we agreed with them on that. And then afterwards it turned out he had the whole show. So he edited the whole show together. We got special dispensation from Equity to release it. So we put it on Vimeo last year. We're going to do that again in a few weeks, actually. Do you guys have yeah. like a couple volumes of all your plays? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I went back a few years ago. I got a fellowship, um, playwriting fellowship, and I used the fellowship to put together an anthology. Now, this anthology was only from 2000 to like 2017, I think. It was the Bush, Cheney, Obama years. Um, I'm still wanting to go back and do more, but that anthology uh, is like, it's free. You go on the Mind Troop site and download it. It's got pictures and notes and commentary and all of this stuff. It's on I iTunes, iBooks, the, the book part of iTunes, you know, so you could just download it because we wanted to make sure I wanted to get it out there because I wanted to make sure that the next generation of activist playwrights, when people are saying, well, what was going on when Cheney was in? What was going on during all of this time? Wasn't anybody writing plays? Okay, another quick story. So 
Trump becomes president and a bunch of theater companies are going, hey, we want to do activist political plays. We want to do things that challenge the system. We want to do things that talk about democracy. Can you recommend any plays? They're asking me in particular. And I'm every play I recommended was actually from the 1930s because that was, you know, Federal Theater Project, all of this stuff was going on. And there was, uh, you know, these great playwrights. And then one of them said, what about your plays? And I said, aha, good point. That's <laughs> when I started working on the anthology because I realized that there are theater students and playwrights around the country and around the world who are so hungry for examples of modern political plays, modern political comedies, and they just don't exist. So that's what we put out there. I am so glad. I also want to uh, remind people, you can go to sfmt.org, sanfranciscomimetroop.org, and you can click on a variety of plays and, uh, as Michael mentioned, an anthology. There's a history of the Mime Troop. There's a lot of songs. It, it's a giant library. It's really a lovely little thing. Yeah, and you could still listen to Tales of the Resistance and, uh, and uh, Red Carol. They're still on there. Oh, yes. We're going to talk about those in a few minutes, too, but those are some recent stuff that they've done because of COVID. The Mime Troupe hasn't been able to perform in the parks, so they brilliantly um, went to a podcast situation this past summer. We'll talk about that in a little while. I wanted to see if I could get a couple of your thoughts on some, a few others. Godfellas jumped out at me, too. <laughs> I didn't see Godfellas, but this is... Oh, you should have seen I, it. I, I feel bad. Whenever I've missed one, I try to see, usually see every other one or so. Televangelizing head of the JCLU, the Jesus Christ Loves You Ministries, the Reverend C.B. DeLove would like nothing better than to bring the nation to the Lord and the nation's money to him. If it only weren't for that pesky First Amendment. So tell us a little bit about Godfellas. Michael. Godfellows was, that was the year when around the country there are all of these big Christian rock concerts and, you know, filling stadiums to talk about Jesus and whatnot. I was like, I want to write a play about this. And other there are other people saying, well, we've got to really focus on the age of reason and enlightenment. And, and they were also kind of using a reason, lifting it up to a religious status also, you know? And I was like, well, I want to do something about blind faith. And I needed a concept because that's a big deal for me. So I was like, what if they're all gangsters? So I wrote Godfellas and there's, you know, all of the religious figures, the mullah and minister and the priest and the, and the rabbi, when they're not in front of people, they got this real Damon Runyon guys and dolls set of accents <laughs> and the way they talk. Cause that's all it's about is money and power and who we're going to squeeze. And they are juxtaposed with uh, a woman also that Valina played Angela who uh, worships reason. She runs this little nonprofit organization that is unfortunately, cause at that time the government was giving religious organizations the power to take over nonprofit organizations and say they're going to run it and they weren't going to change it, but they were make, taking it from sacred to secular. And so that's what happens to her little organization that's about helping the you know, inner city youths with understanding history. They suddenly are taken over by this church. And so she goes through this, you know, the long dark tea time of her soul, trying to figure out what she's going to do. And she ends up coming back as kind of a religious zealot for reason. And she ends up uh, kind of paired with Reverend DeLove. And they're on this uh, speaking tour. It's kind of like Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman. They're going around and they're making a living at it and they don't really get along. And 
and it's all about money. So it was a that was a really a fun, reasonably offensive show to do. At one point, we were doing that show, and a group of people from uh, the Middle East actually uh, were brought to doing a national tour under the State Department's aegis. And they came and saw the show and they're like, we want this show. We want a show about religious fundamentalism and the danger of religious fundamentalism. Can you do this show in Tunisia and Egypt and Turkey? This was before the whole Arab Spring thing. And we were like, that sounds great. We didn't go because <laughs> what happened was that they were having these thoughts and wanting to bring us over because they saw the increased fundamentalism in their countries. And before they could raise the money to bring us, the fundamentalists had taken over. Yeah. 2011, the spring, the Arab Spring in 2011. Yeah. So many lost dreams in that one. But anyway, it sounds, yeah. Godfellas sounds like a great show. I have to say, you guys have a great graphic artist too. E every single one of the posters for these shows, you got to see them. You, you see the posters and the first thing that jumps out at you is like, I got to see that show. It's so cool. Who does your graphics? Uh, different people. That's always a big deal for us is trying to find the right artist for the concept of the show. And sometimes we look back and we go, oh, he missed on that one. But most of the time, uh, for a long time, uh, it was Spain Rodriguez, who was a, you know, a comic book legend from the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s, just a, an amazing artist. But we would also use other people and it really had to do with scanning the world and seeing which artist, uh, like Fabiana Rodriguez, uh, different artists who fit the idea of that show, you know, and our black has done a few uh, posters for us now. It is, it's tough. I mean, that's the thing where we come in and we look at the poster and we make conversation, we do stuff, the director talks in, the writer, and if I'm writer and director on a show, to really work it so that the poster isn't pandering to the audience, but at the same time, it's arresting enough and it tells enough of the story to get them interested. You know, in that sense, I'm a comic book guy, at least when I was a kid, and I still like comic books. And when I see a good cover, I would buy it. You know, it would it would mm -hmm. grab me, even if that was even the first story only, but it, the cover would grab me. So I, I love your posters over time. They're really good. Yeah, Lawton Lovely, who did the poster oh, right. for... Um, for this year, for Tales of the Resistance last summer, he was an, our sound guy for years and an artist. And he, this was his second show that he had done the poster for us. He's like living somewhere off in his sheltering in place in Ohio. But we got in touch with him and said, do you want to do the poster this year? And he's like, yeah. Well, he had to do different genres, too. So that he did a great job on mm -hmm. that one. How about uh, 2012, the musical? The reason I bring this <laughs> is because this is about a small political theater group, BAM, B-A-M, finds itself at a crossroads. Should they keep telling the stories they feel can change the world and starve while telling them or feed at the corporate trough and sell out? You know, I can't help but wonder that might be a little bit autobiographical, Michael. Just a tad. We were, uh, <laughs> I was trying to come up with a show for the year and uh, walking around. And while I was walking, which is what I do when I'm writing or thinking about stuff, I go for these like miles long walk. I'll come back, you know, 10 hours later. And I was walking along and I got a call from the collective because there was a meeting going on that I wasn't at. And it had to do with a granting organization that was telling us that, well, they wanted to give us this money, but they wanted to do it only if we were going to talk about a certain thing, which to my mind was not the issue of the year. And, it, and everyone's like, we've got to do this. We've got to do this because we need this money for the show. And I thought, fine. What if we do a play about a theater company that's forced to do that issue? So we put it in the show. It was in there, but it was what they were forced to do 
in order to get the money from this organization. And so the play is very much about a freedom of speech and how that freedom is curtailed economically. You know, and we don't think about that enough. It's always about, you know, for theaters, for the arts in general, it's like, what can you pay for? What can you raise money to say? And if you can't raise enough money for a particular thing, sometimes it doesn't get said. And theater companies around the country are always looking to their board of directors and the, the doctors and lawyers and, and bankers on their board to see what they'll give them money for. And, and that can sometimes soften a message. Some theater companies are very brave. They're just like, ah, screw you. If you don't want to give us money for this, get off our board. But a lot of companies succumb to that pressure. And so that was what the play was about, was not just about theaters or companies, but individuals. What is it that you stop yourself from saying because you feel like it's too dangerous? It might endanger your job. It might endanger a relationship. It might endanger your income in some way. And it's like, no, you got to do it anyway. I, I like that. I think that's something about the troupe that has consistently impressed me is you guys say what you're, you want to say. Going back to seeing Double, when that one, you know, there you are as a young trooper at the time playing both a Palestinian and an Israeli. And I remember even when it came to Mendocino, and I saw it here, a lot of people who may have easily been offended by showing one side too much, especially if there was anti-Israeli uh, notions in the play. And I remember you guys, and this is another great thing about the troupe, you guys come out afterwards and you talk to the audience. You effectively do a Q&A with the audience. And I remember uh, you guys handling the back and forth and so on. That was a really inspirational and also agitational kind of play in the sense that it, you, you had to have an opinion leaving that play. You had to feel something. And you guys do that same thing where it's in the guise of something that seems like it might be a Moliere play or something. Mistaken identity. Will this guy come out? Nice. And that stuff is really a throwback in theater history. I just love that kind of stuff, the way you guys go at it that those different ways. Well, the thing that we're talking about, like I said, it's always the goal is what, what I tell when I sometimes teach playwriting and I would say the goal of every play or any play that's written should be to change the entire world. That's the only possible goal. That's it. That's what you shoot for. If everybody sees your play and everybody understands your play, everything changes. You may not make it every time, but that's what you should shoot for. Anything else that's short of that is just masturbation. And there are websites for that. <laughs> you know, um, don't waste my time. Uh, and, you know, and I don't care about your mommy issues. Change the world. So that idea of activating people, having them feel like, revolution and change is a fun, active, interesting thing to do and a place to be and something to be a part of. So if they leave, they feel energized and they feel not just uh, uh, challenged by the things, the parts of themselves that they, they were struggling with and couldn't accept, but also reinforced with the things that they were doing that and thoughts they had that were actually positive. You don't want to just tell people, you guys are here, you're great. You always want to challenge the audience with how are they tacitly approving of their own oppression? How are they helping? Yeah. And show them both, but don't, don't depress them. As I say, you know, if you show, do a play that's really about a serious issue, and all our shows are about really serious issues. But if you deal with it so seriously and in such a depressing way, the audience will kill themselves. Yeah. Which means you have no word of mouth. 
<laughs> and no repeat, repeat customers. You mentioned about, you know, walking and getting ideas and taking long walks. I th- it strikes me also that you've used some of your acting experience to come up with different ideas. I've mm-hmm. seen, I think I've seen you in A Christmas Carol. I know you've done, you've done mm-hmm. it more than once, right? You've done it a few times. Oh, yeah. And you've used that to do a rewrite of Dickens's Christmas Carol called A Red Carol. I wondered uh, if you could talk about the kind of stuff that you wanted to bring to A Red Carol. The inference there is that the working people in Mr. Scrooge's life are taking a beating. Here you are, and you actually deal with this. Can you tell us about A Red Carol? Well, I did A Christmas Carol for years at ACT, and I really liked the version. It was a Laird Williamson version, and I enjoyed it. But one time during a... uh, uh, Two things happened. One was we did a production one time, the first year I did it, and afterwards I went out to the lobby and I'm talking to audience members. I'm collecting money for Equity Fights AIDS, which is an organization and a movement to raise money for those members of the union who are dealing with the economic results of them having AIDS. So helping them with rent, helping them with uh, food and stuff like that. So we're out there and an audience member walks past me and she says, I can't believe that after a show like this, they are asking for money. And I was like, what the hell show did you just see, lady? I didn't say it out loud, but I wanted to. So after that, every time I went out to the lobby, I would ask for money for Equity Fights AIDS. And I'm dressed as a ghost of Christmas past. I'm wearing a tricorn hat and hose and golden makeup. And I would say, if you're not going to give any money to us, please remember there are people who live right on the steps of this theater. Please think about them after having seen that show and giving them something. They stopped asking me to go out to the lobby and ask for money after that. (laughs) So that, and then another time I was doing the show and somebody said to me, an artistic director for a local theater, that they didn't understand all this politics stuff around Dickens. He wasn't political and he wasn't doing activism. He was just writing. I was so offended by that. I was like, have you ever read Christmas Carol? Have you read any of the, did you read Hard Times? Did you read Copperfield? They're all about social activism and changing the world. What I realized is that we live in a post-Dickens world. We don't think about it, but we do. Uh, because before Dickens, the idea of, of philanthropy was not a thing. You didn't give money to people at the end of the year because the English felt like if you were born poor, you're supposed to stay poor. And trying to change your class is almost ungodly. These people up here were given this position by Jesus Christ himself. And so they deserve it. And if you're down here, you deserve that. And Dickens invents this idea of helping everybody and seeing your fellow human beings as fellow human beings who are simply are unfortunate, unlucky, bad things happened to them, not because of their lack of birthright, but because of things that happen. And so he invented this idea that we now live with. We go, of course, every time somebody says something about the, the homeless not being quite as human, people immediately go, Scrooge. And Scrooge didn't represent Scrooge. Scrooge represented the normal mindset in England at the time. But people have reduced Christmas Carol to a play or a story or a film or whatever that's just about this one dick. And if he would change, everything would be wonderful. I've seen versions of Christmas Carol in which the the opening scene is in London and everybody's happy. Even the poor starving people are asking for money for rich people and the rich people happily give it to them. Scrooge is the only cloud moving through uh, of unhappiness. 
And it's not true. If you gave money to the poor and unfortunate in those days, it was virtually against the law. It was so frowned upon. They had the poor laws where you just weren't supposed to do that. All of that frustration for me, and especially the thing about the idea of Christmas Carol being about Scrooge and his redemption rather than society's was why I started working on in uh, 2011, I started work, or 2010, I started working on My Christmas Carol, which is from the workers' point of view. And it's filled with workers' songs, old IWW songs and union songs. It doesn't take place in that version of England. I don't really say where it takes place. <laughs> and they're singing these songs and actually saying in the show, it takes place at an abandoned Occupy encampment a roadside encampment like yeah. the Jodes would have in, uh, in uh, uh, Grapes of Wrath. And they're doing this story and telling it to this audience to say, we, the working class, built this country and we, the working class, should benefit first from it. And that this idea of, of a caste system is fundamentally wrong. And uh, yay. And so <laughs> I wrote it and then the Mime Troop tr kept trying to raise money to do it and we couldn't. And I actually, we did a reading. The first reading of that play happened at Occupy Oakland oh. in 2011. Oh, that wow. was opening day was Occupy Oakland on Christmas Eve. And we got a review from Associated Press, came and saw, reviewed it. And they were like, this is amazing. Something's going to happen with this play. Nothing happened. I couldn't get any theaters interested. All the progressive theaters said, nobody wants to do Christmas Carol, that old chestnut. And the big theaters were like, we've already got a Christmas Carol and we don't want to do your commie version. <laughs> so after all these years, after we did Tales of the Resistance, and I was like, we really need to do some more stuff to keep our radio presence alive. And we should do a red carol. Oh, that's great. And so the company said, yes. And so I rewrote it for, I adapted it for radio and we did it and it's gone very well. That's great. It's just was out this fall. It was out during the Christmas season. So you can still hear it. It's you still on, on actually. Right. Yeah. It's a red carol for those who are listening to this podcast. It's, it's great stuff. So I, I like the way you get the different inspirations and you have the art of adapting other works is actually quite an art in and of itself. And I'm thinking mm. now of the work you've done on Orwell's 1984, which I I haven't seen yet. Oh, you should. It's my good. One of my end questions is, are they going to make it into a movie? But you did a version where I believe it takes place in one room and Tim Robbins' actors gang, I think they're called in L.A., they took it on and produced it. And so you've worked with Tim Robbins extensively on that. Tell us about how you adapted 1984. Every 10 years or so, I have to reread it. It's one of those books, you know. How did you do that? Well, I was I was working on Veronique of the Mounties at the Mime Troupe, writing that show. <laughs> Another great show about the United States invading Canada. And uh, as I was writing it, I realized that as, as I was making the United States more and more into a police state, and I was like, it was kind of becoming kind of 1984-ish. And then I was working on, I can't remember the next show, and I was like, it was 1984-ish. And I realized that I was basically writing all these different takes of 1984, and I should just write 1984 to get it out of my system. What I decided to do, being a history major, I was like, it made me think about the, the Stalinist show trials. And at the same time, the other idea floating in my head was all of these people who work for the United States of America who were off torturing people in Guantanamo or at Abu Ghraib at the time and all these other places we don't know about, that those people are trained to be torturers. They're trained to be brutal interrogators. And then after that, 
they come home. They don't stay in Guantanamo. They move back. They go back to Indiana or they go back to Florida. They go back to California. They're the people you sit next to on the bus. Who are these people? How do they justify that to themselves? And why did we as a nation accept it? Yeah, people protested and stuff, but Guantanamo still got people in it. Those people were picked up off of battlefields in their country that had been invaded and imprisoned because they fought against the invaders. And we were trained to believe they were terrible. And so the idea of show trials and torture kind of mixed in my head to the point where I said, you know what I should do? A way to do 1984 is not make it about Winston Smith. It's about the people interrogating him. So I put in four interrogators. The whole thing takes place in a single room, like you said, and they're four interrogators. And what they do is they reenact all of his thought crimes, everything that he did, because they all have versions of his diary. The first half of the novel, 1984, are all Winston Smith's diary entries. So the play is all, they all have copies of his diary and they're playing different people in his past, including one of them that plays Winston to reenact his crimes. And then he has to accept that that's what he did. Now, the other reason I decided to do uh, a six person cast of the show and with no set, essentially no set, was I wanted to write an adaptation that anybody could do. Any little theater company, you know, in a back street in Argentina or a company in Ukraine or a company in Hong Kong or anywhere, any small theater company or big theater company could afford to do this. I took all the technology out of it. There are no telescreens and cameras and all that crap because when Orwell wrote it, that was a big deal. Nowadays, (laughs) if people think there's a camera filming them, they start dancing, you know? So, So I wanted to do it in such a way that everyone could do it. The Politics are clear and that it is about the audience and the way to make it about the audience and not Winston was to make it about the people who are interrogating him, who see themselves as good I've got to see it. It, There's a chance to be turned into a movie. Another story. Okay. So (laughs) I I, I was writing it. Felina and I were in Denver doing a show called John Brown's Body, this massive play. It was a great play. Oh, yeah. Um, and while we were there, I get a phone call from uh, uh, Amos Glick, who was in the Mime Troupe at the time. And he said, I'm talking to Tim Robbins. He wants to know if you have any other plays besides a Mime Troupe show that they could direct and he could do down at uh, Actors Gang. And I said, well, I got this 1984. And he's like, great. So I get in touch with Tim and I'm working on it and I'm talking to the estate and all of this stuff. And the show opens like a year and a half later. And even before it opens... We're in previews and Tim walks up to me and says, hey, the two guys behind me, they're going to put up $10 million each to produce the film version. And I say one of the stupidest things I've ever said, I don't care about that. I just want to focus on the play. Anyway. (laughs) um, And so, but so we're doing the play, they're doing the play and they run it and they're starting and he's talking to all of these actors about trying to put together the film version. And it turns out, and this is where it gets weird. There's a a person in the United States who controls the rights, the film rights to 1984. Her husband won those rights in a poker game back in like the early 1960s. The reason they were available for the poker game was because when Orr was on his deathbed, his lawyer came in and told his wife, you know, you guys are poor. You'll never make any money off of any of these books. Why don't you just give the rights to me for all of your, all of Orwell's stuff? And he's like dying, so he can't say anything. Give it to me and I'll guarantee you get 2,000 pounds a year. And she's like, okay. And then 12 years later, her son's in college at the time. And he goes, you know, mom, we all have to read dad's book. It's everywhere. 
And she just hadn't noticed. She wasn't in school. So they sue the lawyer to get the rights to the stuff back. And they get the rights to everything except for the film. He keeps the film oh. rights. And that really interesting version that was made in uh, the mid-80s with Richard Burton, that was made by yeah. the guy who won the rights in the poker game. He later passed away. His wife holds the rights. So Tim is flying to Chicago because that's where she is and spends really like two years trying to negotiate with her to get it so that we could do the film version that we want to do. And she just never gave permission because every couple of years, we always like, man, we should do this. And he's like, yeah, I think I could get the money in this, but it all comes down to getting permission from her. And she very romantically sees that version, the Richard Burton, uh, John Hurt, I think version as this yeah. tribute to her husband who's passed away. So she doesn't want anything else to happen because that's their film. And I can understand and appreciate that, but she should stop doing that and just let, let us make my yeah. version. And it's just uh, another frustrating showbiz story, but you know, that's, I hear you. I mean, it happens. Well, let's go back to something that's not frustrating. We've mentioned uh, Tales of the Resistance a couple times. This to me is a victory for theater in this time of COVID. Every summer, the San Francisco Mime Troupe since mid-60s, I think, has put a show in parks in the San Francisco Bay Area and beyond. And um, this year, because of COVID and social distancing uh, rules, etc., they were not able to do that. Rather than sitting on their butts and whining about it, the San Francisco Mime Troupe went into the studio and recorded, I think there's 10 Tales of the Resistance at this point, 10 radio plays of approximately a half an hour or so. And they are wonderful radio plays, contemporary engineering, really good singing, really good songs, great stuff. And they're in four different genres, as I recall, horror, sci-fi, detective, and... Uh, Adventure. An adventure. Tell us about making that transition. And oh, you guys put so much into that. Tell us about Tales of the Resistance, Michael. Well, first, I want to just tag a little something else about 1984. Besides the fact that we still haven't made the movie. Meanwhile, the show is played across the world. It's translated into like six languages now. It's published in two languages. When COVID hit, it was running at the Alley Theater, my 1984, at the Alley Theater in Houston. It's a big theater. It was doing a national tour. It was playing in Ukraine with their national theater, the Ukrainian translation. I saw that. Yeah. So it's been all over the place. And as soon as this is all over, it'll be out there again. So keep an eye out for it. Ah, Tales of the Resistance. Yeah, so we were uh, having our... Uh, Meeting, like I said, uh, everybody was doing something when when uh, the lockdown happened. I was I had just come back actually from visiting a production of 1984 in Seattle and the one in Houston. I just and I was doing uh, ragtime at Theater Works. We just started rehearsals, oh. hmm. and then everything got shut down. And they said, "Go home. The production's over. We're still going to pay you for three weeks because Theater Works is an amazing company that way." And we had just started to talk about what we were going to do for the Mind Troop show at the same time because normally I'm in, I got I'm in shows because I got rent, like I said. Yeah. But I'm sometimes writing another play, like 1600 Transylvania Avenue. I wrote most uh, a great deal of that play in the green room at ACT while I was working on another show. Great. So we'd already decided we were going to do a summer show. It was going to be called Democracide. And I'd already planned the show and it had the four different genres and different stories. And I knew what was going to happen and stuff. And then when uh, we, we weren't going to go into the parks, we were like, well, maybe we can do a live radio play and in the studio. But then it turned out we couldn't get together in the studio. So we were kind of talking about live radio and then it became recorded radio. 
And then it was like, well, what if we do, instead of democracide, uh, they were like, what are we going to call it? And I was like, uh, Tales of the Resistance. And that was perfect because it is these four different stories. It's a police officer who believes he's a good cop, but actually he's been supporting brutality and racism, but thinking he was not part of that. And a, and a worker from Amazon who is uh fashions himself as a detective to try to figure out what happened to his job and a nurse who's dealing with people who are anti-vaxxers and uh, don't trust uh, uh, the medical industry, even though they're always using it. And a guy who's an inventor who comes up with this algorithm that reads people, basically figures out your opinions and what you think and can do things for you, ultimately, including maybe voting. And so I said, what I pitched to the company without thinking about it hard enough was, what if I write these plays each one as a different genre and they'll overlap slowly and different characters from one will overlap in the other one until all the stories come together in the last one or two episodes. And everyone said, that sounds great. And I really didn't think hard enough about what I had signed myself up for. So all summer, I was just like wandering the beach in San Francisco and walking around trying to think through story ideas, think of how to tell the story efficiently, which you have to do on radio. Uh, comically and efficiently and in a way with no sets or costumes and to start making the stories overlap for some reason, you know, for some, trying to find something in each time. Uh, Marie Cartier uh, wrote the commercials. Oh yeah. They're great. To, you know, we would go yeah. through. Yeah. She mm -hmm. did this great job. And uh, Ellen Callis and I co-wrote one episode of, of uh, tales. And so that's the one about the nurse, right? Right. The second episode about the nurse, Ellen came mm -hmm. up with the original idea and then we worked on it together. It was a challenge for everyone. And like I said, every Thursday, we would all get together uh, on, a, on Discord, which is a gaming platform, really, and listen together to a different radio play that I had kind of assigned. And we would listen to it and then talk about it. And about half the time, I couldn't be there because I had to write because our first reading was Friday. <laughs> and so sometimes I was like, I'm sorry, I can't be there. But this is what you should listen for. And so it was a great, and Valina Brown, again, she directed the episodes and she did a great job of both learning how to do that. Oh, Valina had signed up for her to direct her first summer park show last year. After all her uh -huh. years with the company, she's like, I'm going to direct the park show. And it turned out to be a radio play. <laughs> <laughs> but she did a great job. It is really quite good. And you can click on any of the episodes and listen to them. I listened, uh, you know, doing research for this. I really, they're, they're really good. They're really entertaining. Perfect for the ride in a car. You can listen to three or four of them if you've got a two-hour trip. Highly recommended Tales of the Resistance. One other aside, I believe Valina directed you in this. You wrote and starred in a one-man show about your life. Mm -hmm. it's, let's see, I'm just looking up. Did anyone ever tell you you look like Huey P. Newton? Right. When I first saw you, I thought, you know, he looks a little bit like Huey P. Newton. <laughs> this is way back in the yeah. um, Seeing Double days. So yeah. tell us about the one-man show uh, and getting teased about looking like uh, Huey Newton. Yeah, well, what ended up happening was people kept saying that to me. I mean, just random people. Like I'd walk into a store and someone would say, you know who you look like? <laughs> At just different situations. And people always felt like they had to say something to me about their experiences with the Panthers or with Huey in particular. And then one day I was riding my bike and I went to a bike shop and a woman had, and she like looked at me and she's like, Oh, I thought you were Huey P Newton. And she told me this story. And that's when I decided I need to write something about this. So I wanted to write a play where I play all of these people telling me I look like Huey. And at the same time, what it's like to grow up as a black 
a leftist, you know, in Los Angeles, San Francisco, to grow up in a black political family. And again, in which I don't reject my parents' politics because I'm sick and tired of things where people always want to show how their hippie parents or their activist parents or whatever were so wrong. I just hate that. I think it's just lame and easy. And it's it's just bowing down to the corporatists and all of that. It's like, no, 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 no. The people who said everything needed to change were absolutely right. The people who are fighting for justice and fighting for economic justice and fighting for environmental justice and social justice and all of these things, they were right. And if they'd won, we wouldn't be in the situation we are now. I wanted to validate all of that, but at the same time, deal with the ultimate idea of the show because people would have positive stories about Huey and very negative stories. And I would tell all of them. And in the end, the idea is that what's more important, the message or the messenger? And if the message is important, the messenger can be flawed and have problems and die in a shot by somebody on the streets of Oakland. And that's tragic and all. But what happens with it? It's not as important as the message. And so uh, from that, I ended up meeting the Newton family. I went over there for, oh. for uh, their family reunions a few times, which was kind of weird because there would be people who mm. weren't even from the state who would come up to me and tell me their Huey story because he was their yeah. uncle and they remembered him. Um, yeah. It was great getting to know them. And I did the show, in, I did a run in San Francisco and I did a Fringe Festival in New York and I did it up in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And I was about to do another run of it. I was trying to do a film version uh, and I'd booked a theater up in Fairfield, not booked it, but they were going to work with me. I was going to be in their season and they had cameras built into the theater. So I was going to be able to do a really good video version of it and then try to pitch it to like Showtime or something like that. But at that very moment, literally the day after I signed the contract with them, I got the offer to go to the Denver Theater Center with Valina for us to do a show together to do John Brown's Body. And I had to make a choice. And I ended up choosing that show. I'll never know if that was the best show. I mean, but I mean, I do have a video version of the show. It's not a great video version that I put up on YouTube, but uh, I kind of regret that. What year was that that you did that? Uh, let's see. I did the show originally in 2000, I think, when I went to New York and they did it at the Eureka Theater a year later. And yeah. then it was just a couple of years after that, 2003, I think, when I was going to do it at Fairfield and we, I went to Denver instead. Oh, God. And I always regretted that because they gave me two different dates in Fairfield. They were like, it can either be this time or this time. And if I'd picked this time, I could have done both shows. And at the last minute, yeah. I decided to pick this one. Uh, oh, well. The coulda, shoulda, woulda part about career choices is always one of those, yeah. um, oh, well. But at the same time, I mean, you've had a you've <laughs> had a great career so far, even. And one of the things is we've talked, uh, a major part of this talk has been about your playwriting and your, your experiences as a, a Mime Troupe collective member. But you're a, a great actor-singer, and you've played in all kinds of shows. You've played with all kinds of groups, uh, companies, ACT, the Magic Theater, California Shakespeare. You mentioned some of the other places. Do you like acting as much as playwriting or more? Or, you know, do you prefer comedy roles to serious roles? It's very hard to say. I've been thinking about it a lot during this time off, you know, because I was getting ready to go into a show. I was getting ready to to, to do ragtime. And, and I've spent so much of my adult life has been in shows. I haven't had a day job. I haven't been a day job actor. My day job has been acting. And so that means that I have to be in shows to have money. And so, and I've been very, very fortunate in that I haven't had to do shows 
that I didn't want to do. You know, there's, there's enough theater in the Bay Area to do shows that I actually always feel strongly about, that I really like and want to do. Uh, and I've and I've started to do more public, just public speaking, you know, mm -hmm. speaking at rallies, mm -hmm. you know, and being asked to come and come, play our MC at this rally about, you know, fascism. <laughs> Be hilarious. Yeah. And, uh, and that's been fun and, and also feels very important. But trying to figure out what is it at this point in my career, I'm writing so much. I spent so much time last year writing. I've got a play reading coming up in like two weeks of a show I wrote last year when Ragtime got ended and we had to stop. And I knew that I wasn't going to start writing the Mind Troop show for another like month and a half or two months. In that time, I wrote another play. I wrote this completely other play that had been in my head for a couple of years. And I decided to just put it down. And I've done four, this is the fourth reading of it. And then there'll be a reading. So a reading in San Francisco, then there's going to be a reading in San Diego in like another month and a half. So I've been kind of using writing as my expression yeah. for so long that it's hard to say yeah. which one I like more. Um, and I really love directing. Directing yeah. is hilariously fun. So it's, it's tough, you know, and I know that uh, I remember when I was in LA for the opening of 1984 originally, a guy who worked there said, well, what do you do besides this? What do you do? And I said, well, I'm an actor, writer, director. And he said, nobody can do that. Nobody does it. Not since <laughs> Chaplin. He actually said that. Not since Chaplin has anybody be able to do that. And um, no. That, and I think what he meant was to be able to do it on that scale. But to be a member of the San Francisco Mime Troupe, where I, a company where I get a chance to do stuff, just like Felina does and Keiko Shimasato Carrero and whoever gets a chance to try different things. If you can do it, you can do it. So I don't think there's anything that I want to put down if I had a chance to be in something, as a matter of fact, as soon as we finish this, I've got to record an audition. Um, that there's nothing that I want to stop doing, but I, because I really enjoy whichever one I'm doing. And the last show I did, let's see, I did the musical version of Groundhog Day. That was actually the last show I did that went all the way through. And then before that, I was in the Mind Troop show. And before that, I was in a, an adaptation of a Toni Morrison story at Marin Theater Company called Jazz. So I was doing a, a very dramatic play in which I play someone who kills his young lover. And then I did the Mime Troop show where I played a pirate uh, and it was a big political expose. And then I played a guy from the Midwest who is a mayor of a small town where we, where we have punk Satani Phil. You know, the fun of being able to do drama and comedy and political farce and all of that back and forth. Eh, it's no part of that I want to give up. You know, you don't have to give it up. You know, that's the thing is you you can, I think being part of Michael Gene Sullivan is being able to do all this different stuff and perhaps going in that direction that, that you want to at the time. And I got to think that being a, a Mime Troop member all these years has, you know, kind of helped you develop in those different directions. I mean, it's, you can write, you can sing, you can act, you can direct, you can do all of that. It's kind of cool in a way to have that, that structure behind you. Yeah. Well, like I said, it's made a huge difference. It's definitely been a part. I, I really like that about the troupe. And I really like that about the way you've been able to be part of that. Now you've got a teenage son. Oh yeah. 17 year old. Zachary Brown Sullivan. He's now 17? Yep. Gonna be 18. Now, he's done some acting too, right? Yeah, he actually did. He didn't want to. He didn't want to do the acting. He uh, he started off, he did a little baby modeling just because he was so damn cute. 
And uh, we took him to stuff. And our agent was like, well, some things are going to come up where, where if you have a kid, Valina and I have the same agent, where they'll want a family, a real family. So can you come in and do that? And I asked her. So we signed our son up. And he did a little baby modeling stuff. And then he got cast at one point in a, uh, in a series, uh, a pilot for a series. And this show did not get picked up. And he, they, he did the show. And it was like about these three kids. And he was one of the principals in it. But I think what he's told us just in a conversation recently was he learned from that, that he really didn't enjoy the process. He, it wasn't something that he was into now, whether or not that'll change, cause he's a really good actor, whether that'll change in the future, who knows, but he still is just like, he just didn't like doing it. And you know, that's okay. And it may be that he'll head off in a completely different direction. You ended up, you know, politically activist, um, playwright, actor, singer, etc., and Valina, some similar things. But gosh, you know, he could end up not rejecting anything that you guys represent and be an engineer. Oh, which would be fine with me. And also, I also have to remember that when I was his age, being an actor or in theater was not on the list of possibilities. Yeah. I was not thinking about that at all. I had when I was his age, I had never been on stage. Oh, that's right. It's fascinating. It's fascinating how we grow up into these different things. I recall high school wanting to be a football player and, you know, the mm -hmm. kind of thing. And I remember when I was finishing up in high school, did pretty well in school, and I got recruited by small colleges. And I remember talking to my coach, and he goes, uh, you know, hey, Coach Ryan, do you think maybe I should give it a go? And he goes, you know, Nan, you're a small lineman. And you're also a slow lineman. And slow and small is a bad combination in college football. <laughs> so I thank him now. I thank him yes. now. You know, my knees still work. So yeah, there's that. Really? So, yeah. Yeah. But um, anyway, you and Valina have put together a fascinating life in theater and related areas. You've worked with the Mime Troupe now for years. How long have you both been involved with the troupe? I came into the troupe. I mean, my first show is 1988. Okay. And her first show, I think, was 92. Uh, she came, we both came in as replacement actors. She came in as a replacement for social work. Oh, before that, though, there are just around that time, I, I was directing a school show for the Mime Troupe, a school tour, and I needed a musician. And so I hired Valina to be the entire band. For the show and so she had a keyboard and her guitar she's also a guitarist and drums and all that stuff and so she went out on tour as the as the entire band for the show knocked up which was about you know the morning after pill and uh, and it was a commedia dell'arte play and i think that also uh kind of showed everybody it's like oh she's really good and so yeah so she's been in Kind of since then. She joined the collective much later. She was doing shows with the company, and then finally she joined. I can't even remember what year. She'll tell you. Yeah, I'm going to have the opportunity a week from today at this very time to be able to talk with Valina Brown, Michael's wife and longtime partner. So I'm really looking forward to that, too. So. Oh, and I didn't. I don't know if I said Valina when I did my one-person show, the Huey Newton show. Valina directed that. I, I think I got that, too. So, that you know, yeah. you guys have done a lot of cross-pollinization, as it were. And I guess Zachary is a piece of cross-pollinization, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and listen, when we were going to, when we decided to have a kid, we had to sit down with a whole big uh, yearly schedule for both of us mm -hmm. to make it to fit between it. I'm doing this at ACT. Valina's doing this over yeah. here. I'm doing this at Theater Works. The Mime Troupe, we had to fit all of that in. And, and it worked out perfectly 
And then a couple of years later, when we were both in shows and we were like, we need one of us. At one point, we were both in a show at Christmas at two different theaters. And we're like, what are we going to do? We have a baby. And at that very moment, I mean, literally like that night when we were like, somebody has to drop out of a show. Uh, I got a phone call from someone who said that they were in an all woman theater, uh, all woman circus. And they'd like to hire me to direct their circus. How much would it cost? And I said, you know, if you could trade me hour for hour directing and babysitting, <laughs> I can do it. And they said, yes. And I worked with them for like two and a half years. And every time, and I would just bank the hours. And so I'd be directing and be coming at the show. And then I'd say, okay, when something comes up. And it was, so for a few years, my son was babysat by clowns and a magician. And he would get picked up from school by clowns on their way to gigs. <laughs> so all the kids are sitting around and Zachary thought it was totally normal to have a woman show up and she's got like all this crazy hair and weird stripy stuff. And she's like, okay, come on, let's go. Oh, that's and cool. all the other kids are like, what is your life? And he was like, yeah, oh, that's Luz. She's a clown. Someday he'll write the autobiography and it'll be about growing up with you <laughs> two. And this, this will be some of the, the background for it. So yeah. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, uh, Michael. I have admired your work for years. I've had a chance to see you now and then uh, in shows oh, and or at the troupe. And I, I really, really love your and Valina's work. And keep it up, man. Thanks a it's lot. It's a pleasure. If there were any justice, you would be a major uh, world playwright. And I think you are overthrowing capitalism one musical comedy at a time. <laughs> and I think you are partly getting it right. And I'm glad for that. So thank you. Well, doing my best. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Michael Gene Sullivan. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you for being on Snap Sessions. Thank you for having me, Doug. Thanks to our artist of the show, writer, actor, director, Michael Gene Sullivan of the San Francisco Mime Troupe. Our production team includes Techmeister Marshall Brown, Jack of All Trades Ken Kraus, writer interviewer Doug Nunn, and our logo designer, Daniel Stieglitz. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to our podcast at patreon.com forward slash snap sessions. We depend on the support of listeners like you to cover our monthly podcast and transcription service costs. Please join us as a Snap Session supporter. We have support levels from Little Snapper Snap. to Snappus Maximus. Snap. Thanks to all of our generous supporters.